It's good to be with you. If we haven't met yet, my name is Daniel. I have the privilege of serving as one of the leaders of the Mountain Church and the privilege of preaching our text this morning. When the Mountain Church was started in 2016 with my wife and I and a couple uh, other families and individuals that were on our core team, we dreamed about what the church could look like. <clears throat> what would a church look like that valued the Word of God and sought to uh, live it out? In other words, we didn't just want to talk about the Bible, we wanted to seek to obey it. And we didn't want to just say that we were committed to the Bible, we really wanted to be devoted to it. We wanted to be our gatherings about the Bible, and we didn't want to view the Bible as, as a magazine or a news article. Not have a flippant or casual approach to it, like um, you, know, you might do with your friends. Have you seen the latest New York Times article? The one where it said uh, Ichiro is coming back to the Mariners, he's going to be a coach. It's pretty cool, right? But that's about where that article lands, right? It's cool information. Maybe if you're a Mariner fan, that's more exciting to you. For the rest of you, you're like, I could really care less. The Mariners kind of suck anyways. Uh, but it doesn't have a real difference on our life. We didn't want to view the Bible like that. We believe that the Bible is a unique book. It has the very words of God to us. It's, it's not just random information. It's not boring information. It's, it's living. It's active. It's transformative. And there's meaning and, and truth and richness in the scriptures that we want to be devoted to and seek to draw meaning out from. So that's what we want to do each week, where we don't, we don't want to be lighthearted or surface level in our teaching. Uh, we don't want you to, to guess where the next sermon's going to come from. Or we want you to come each week knowing that we're going to teach the Bible, we're going to go verse by verse, and right now we're in John chapter 4, finishing up uh, where Will left off last week, Right? I hope you guys are excited about hearing from God each week from his word. Or it's just me, it's just me being excited to, to talk to you about it. Right, I've been really encouraged about uh, this kind of dream and, and aspiration of ours when we started the church uh, coming into fruition. It seems like the word of God is taking root in people's lives, people who kind of were at an immature level of they never really read their Bible. They're actually seeking to read it daily. They're seeking to understand it. They're seeking to share what they're learning on Sundays with neighbors and coworkers and friends. I mean, it's really encouraging. People are reading Bible, their Bible together in the YouVersion app through reading plans. Um, I, I, I'm always encouraged by what you guys share with me about what God taught you through his word on Sundays. We, we love doing that. That's, that's my hope. That's Will and Nathan's. As, as an elder team, we want to equip you with the scriptures. We want to equip you with the word. We want to teach it and explain it, proclaim it and explain it. So if you have any questions uh, about the sermon or the, or the text, I would love to help you understand it. We want to help you, give you resources. We have study Bibles out on the bar uh, in this room off to my left here. We'd love to give you a gospel transformation Bible. We think it's a great tool to help you understand what is the Bible all about. It's a unified story that's, that's good news. It's, it points to Jesus. He's the hero and he changes everything. And that's what we believe. It's transformative. So I pray that, that the more you hear this book taught, the more you study it and apply it and obey it, that you would say with the prophet Jeremiah, your words, when I found them, I ate them, and they became a delight to me, the delight of my heart. I pray that that becomes a reality more and more each week for us as a church. And I say all this because uh, what we see in our passage this morning is someone taking Jesus at his word and believing it. So I, I want to I preface what, what we're getting into in the, in the text this morning by, by talking about our value and our commitment and our dream to be a church that's about the Word. We want to center our lives on the Word, and that's our foundation. You guys with me? Okay, I'm just getting it over a cold, if you can't tell, in my voice. So my brain's a little bit foggy, uh, so I might rely a little bit more on affirmation this morning 
whether I'm tracking or not. So nods or shakes, like Will said, uh, any affirmate or not, what is it said? What, is your, what do you say, Will? <laughs> it doesn't always have to be positive, just feedback, right? That's what he says. Yes, affirmation can be positive and negative. Thank you, Will. Okay, if you have a Bible, let's open to the Gospel according to John, chapter 4. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. There's some uh, in here in the room. Uh, let's look at John chapter 4, starting in verse 43. We're going to go through the end of the chapter in verse 54. Uh, this is the, the text that our friend Kelly just read to us. Verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. So the he there is referring to Jesus, and he's just been two days in Samaria. It's important to uh, keep in mind where he just came from, that uh, he, he met this woman at a well. From her testimony, she goes and tells a town, many people believe in Jesus, and then they say in verse 42, uh, the verse right before verse 43, the woman, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So from this woman's testimony, they've come to Jesus. Now from Jesus' own mouth, they believe that he's the Savior of the world. And then after two days, from this, this fruitful ministry in Samaria, he's leaving to go for Galilee. And from, uh, from Samaria to Galilee would be about 50 miles. So this would be about a two to three day journey that he's on. And verse 44 is very peculiar. It says, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet had no honor in his hometown. Now, if you have an ESV Bible, you see that that, that verse is in parentheses. And that's kind of the editor's way of tr trying to help us make sense of what's going on here. I don't know if that's, that's super helpful to make sense of it. Um, but this word that, that starts at the beginning of the verse is very important, the word for. Um, and in fact, if, if you have a, an NIV translation Bible, a New International Version, or a New Living Translation, you, or a Christian Standard Bible, you won't find that word in there. Uh, because those, those translations are, you might say, more of a thought for thought. And uh, if you have more of a little translation, it will have the, the word for in there. And I think that's important because it signifies why he went to Galilee. In other words, the four tells us the reason why he's going to Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And here's what the text seems to be saying. The reason Jesus went to Galilee is because a prophet has no honor in his own country. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's kind of peculiar though, isn't it? I don't have honor here, so I'm going there. John is seemingly saying Jesus is going to a place where he's less honored. He's coming to his own people, knowing that they don't understand who he is, knowing that they don't honor him. This, this seems to be a tie back to some of those original concepts and ideas we saw at the beginning of the Gospel according to John. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This is Jesus' strategy. It might seem strange to us, right? We might not want to go somewhere where we're not honored. That seems like a peculiar thing in our culture. But this, this was Jesus' strategy. He comes to a people who did not receive them, him. And he's coming to them again and again. He's re revealing who he is to them again and again through his miracles, which in the end, uh, he coming to his own gets him killed, and which is why he came. This is Jesus' strategy. It continues in verse 45. So... When he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Now that seems strange too, doesn't it? Just saying he's going to Galilee because he doesn't have honor. The prophet doesn't have honor. But then when he goes there, they welcome him. 
But I want you to see just by looking at the text and, and seeing what the words say that you can understand what it means. You can understand what John is saying here. At first glance, it might not seemingly connect to verse 44, Jesus going to Galilee because he expects no honor, but the word so could also be the word therefore. So when he says a prophet has no honor in his own hometown, therefore when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. What John is saying in this text is seemingly that that people are trusting in Jesus simply as a miracle worker. They're enamored by his signs, so their welcome is, is superficial. John will show us another example of this idea in, later in chapter 7. There's a story of Jesus' own brothers coming to him and telling him, go to Judea, that your disciples may see the works that you're doing, and that you may, they do these things, and show yourself to the world. So his brothers are telling him, go, go do signs, go do miracles. And John writes, for not even his own brothers believed in him. And I think what that is showing us is that there is a way to welcome Jesus that does not honor him. There is a way to receive Jesus and, and still not believe in really who he is. Because they welcomed him not for who he truly was. This is why I think John says the Galileans welcomed him. They may have had more of the belief that, of Jesus that Nicodemus had when he came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we know that you are from God, for no one can do these signs unless he has God with him. God is with that person. But he wasn't honoring him as who he truly was, the son of God, the Christ. He didn't have a grasp of his, of his full identity. And I think from this, you, we can take that you can believe that Jesus can do miracles and still not believe in him. You can believe Jesus can do great things and you can still not honor him. So, verse 46, when he came to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water to wine, another reference John is making us to that sign, that first sign that John tells us where Jesus turned water into wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And when the man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. The word used here for official is used in the sense of a royal official. Official, He could have been a Gentile centurion. He may have been an officer of Herod Antipas, who was the Tetrarch of Galilee. He was a ruler under uh, the Caesar, the Roman emperor. And his son seemingly had a terminal sickness, it was a severe fever that was leading to death. Now, Capernaum to Cana would be about 15 miles. So this would be a long journey that was mainly uphill, which is why he says, will you come down? Will you come down and, and heal my son? And obviously the official had heard something about Jesus. Jesus might have had a reputation at this point. He was gaining popularity. He maybe had the popularity that he could do miracles, that he was a, a miracle worker. He could do signs. And he comes to him and asks for help. Jesus, come, come down and heal my son. He's at the point of death. But look at how Jesus responds in verse 48. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. How does that have anything to do with this request? Right, the man's coming to Jesus to ask him to heal his son. And he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, in the original language, the, the, the sense in which the word you is used here is plural. Right? And we talked about this before. In the English language, there's not, at least maybe urban northerners, there's not quite a word for you plural. Right? If Jesus were maybe in the south, you might say, he would say, yeah, not you guys, Aaron. Y'all, <laughs> unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. 
That's the sense in which he's using it. But here, the officer doesn't give up. He's not turned off by that comment. Said to him in verse 49, Sir, come down before my child dies. The, officer, the official wanted him to come down because miracle workers needed to touch or lay hands on a sick child, a sick boy. They needed to be near the boy. Magicians or prophets or miracle workers had to go to the person. They had to do things. They had to say things. They had to stretch out their hands, touch them with a the staff. They had to be there. The guy's asking, come down, Jesus. Heal my son. Jesus says in verse 50, go. Your son will live. Now, is this a prophecy? Is this Jesus condoling the official like your friend who gives you some kind of fluffy advice when you're down? Is this Jesus saying, hang in there, it'll get better? I don't think so. I don't think Jesus is saying to him that a cheesy phrase like, you know, if you're down, the darkest part of the night is right before the sunrise. (laughs) Jesus is not doing that here. Notice how John records the man responding. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So the official comes to Jesus with a son on the verge of death. He's got a sickness that he needs to be healed, needs to come down. He asks him again, sir, please come down. Jesus says, go, believes the word, and he goes. Believes the word and goes home. Now, uh, in the first century Greco-Roman world, there's no cell phones. He couldn't call or text and see if his son had gotten better. This was a 15 to 20 mile walk home. I don't know if you, many of you walk 15 to 20 miles in a day. It's a long, it's a long walk. You can imagine the anticipation or, or not knowing what had happened. For all he knows, the son might have died on the way to Jesus. He might have died on the way back from Jesus. But as he was going down, he's on his way home. His servants met him and tell him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he got, began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour. Now, in this time, the hours were recorded by when the sun rose. So the sun rose about 6 a.m. Seven hours later would be about 1 p.m. the afternoon. About this time, your son would get better. The fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, go, your son will live. So the the father is knowing and realizing in this moment, this was not a prophecy. This was not some feel-good advice he was giving him. Just hang on. I don't know what's going to happen, but he he might get better. Go, he'll, he'll get better. This was Jesus saying, Go, he will live because I'm saying it. Like this is a miracle of of healing someone with his words 15 to 20 miles away. This is a pronouncement of healing that Jesus' words are powerful. He has the power to heal with a word and the belief sinks, seems to sink deeper. It overflows and at least to his whole family believing in Jesus. It says, and he himself believed in all his household. Verse 54, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. This was the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. The first one, as recorded earlier, was in chapter 2, verse 11, when Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding. John says this, this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So this is what our text says. Let's consider now what the text means. I think it's important to think about this placement of the story in the context, because just previously, we had, we had learned about the story of the woman at the well. John records the account of the Samaritans who were despised by the Jews. They were considered half-breeds. 
but they believe in Jesus because of the woman's testimony and what it says in verse 42, it is no longer because of what you said, they said to the woman, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Now notice what is lacking in that statement. No reference to signs and wonders. They've heard the word from Jesus himself. They've heard his words. They've trusted it. They've trusted him. They know this is the savior of the world. So Jesus comes back to his hometown of Galilee, to his people, his own, and tells them, unless you all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And then there's a story of a a royal official who, quote, believes the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Now, the official may have and probably had heard reports about the signs that Jesus had done. So I think when he comes to Jesus and Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus is trying to call him to a deeper belief, a deeper trust. He's challenging and rebuking the official and the people of Galilee for their overdependence or being enamored with signs and not seeing Jesus for who he is. But Jesus is showing that the signs are not to be ends in themselves. The signs are pointing to the deeper reality of who he is. And in light of what verses 43 and 45 show us that there's a kind of welcoming of Jesus that does not honor him. There's a kind of believing in him that Jesus rebukes. It does not give him glory. I think what John is showing us in this passage is that true faith that honors Jesus, yes, sees the signs and believes in them, but moves deeper into placing trust, ultimate allegiance in the person to work as, of Christ as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the Lord. Jesus', Jesus miracles are not bad in themselves. These signs are not bad in themselves. In fact, they serve as a very important purpose in helping us believe. This is, in fact, what John writes in his purpose statement of the book. John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples. See that? Many other signs, many other miracles, which are not written in this book. But these, these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is a miracle worker. No, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You see that? They point to something greater about who he is, that he's the Christ, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Jesus' signs are intended for us to believe in him as God and to trust him, and that from that trust, moving into acting, obedience. The official may have come to Jesus because he had heard about the signs, but he moves to a trust in the words of Jesus. You can see that in the story. He trusts the words, and he goes Jesus doesn't go down with the official. He says, go, and the official goes. That's trust. That's faith. And what we must ask ourselves this morning as we study this is, how does your trust in Jesus practically function in your life? Right? We, may, we may not be Galileans who grew up in the same town as Jesus. We, we may, may not be enamored by miracles like these Galileans could have been. We might not just believe that he was simply a miracle worker, But I think, friends, the principle that we find in the story is that we may think we welcome Jesus, but not truly honor him. It is one thing to believe things about Jesus, and it is another to believe in Jesus. For many in Jesus' time, they believed in Jesus, but it was more they believed that he could perform miracles. A man was dead. He raised him from the dead. That's powerful. Never seen someone do that. He calls out. A man rises from the dead. That's awesome. And friends, if you research the history and read ancient Roman historians and non-Christian Jewish historians, you can even read articles written today in 2019 from history.com. 
they conclude Jesus was a real person. He really lived. He really died. He really rose again. He wasn't made up. But there is a difference between trusting the facts, agreeing intellectually, seeing signs, and trusting your life, and giving up your life. Belief may start with curiosity and seeking Jesus. You've heard wonderful things about him, but true faith, genuine faith, moves from the signs to the person of Jesus himself. Genuine faith shows itself to be genuine in taking Jesus at his word and obeying it. That's what the text means. Genuine faith shows itself to be genuine in taking Jesus at his word and obeying it. Now, as we consider how we might naturally resist this claim of the text, we might not be like the Jews in this gospel according to John. We might not be enamored with miracles, but I think we are prone to believe great things about Jesus and not actually trust him. Does it honor God simply to believe right things about him? Jesus' own brother James became a great leader and teacher in the church of Jerusalem after Jesus' ascension and resurrection, and he wrote a letter challenging Christians in the early church who thought just by believing in Jesus, believing in God, just meant confessing things. Now, I want to be clear that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But it's also true and clear that that faith never remains alone. And Jesus writes to someone's faith, Jesus, or excuse me, James, Jesus' brother writes that someone's faith will be revealed by their actions, by their deeds. So this man in the story had faith because he went when Jesus said go. He believed the word and he went. James writes this in James 2.19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even demons believe and shudder. You want to talk about having good theology? Demons can have good theology. Even demons believe that. Writes later in James 2.26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Faith without deeds is dead. This means very practically that a so-called Christian and an atheist can be functionally no different in their dishonor of Jesus. On the one hand, an atheist rejects God, they reject Jesus, maybe they just view him as a good teacher or historical figure, but he couldn't be God since there is no God. But on the other hand, a so-called Christian might believe great things about Jesus, that Jesus can do miracles, but doesn't trust him or her with their life, therefore Jesus is not honored. There's no functional difference. On one, there's a conscious decision of unbelief that dishonors Jesus. On the other, their claim with their words, yet their actions contradict their claims. Both dishonor. There's a story uh, that many other pastors have been using for years throughout church history. Probably preachers have used this story when talking about this text, about a famous French tightrope walker named Charles-Jean Gravelet, better known as Blondine. Blondine was famous for walking across a tightrope across the Niagara Falls. He would suspend a rope 160 feet off the ground that was over 1,000 feet long, and he would walk across it. Now, if that doesn't impress you, uh, crowds would come and gather to watch this Frenchman do spectacular things other than just walk across it. So on, on one time, he walked across a tightrope blindfolded. Another time, he walked across on stilts. One time, he walked across with a manager on his back. One time, he even walked to the middle, sat down, made an omelet, and ate it. And you can imagine why people would want to come out and see this guy. 
It's one thing to hear about these stories, and I'm sure he had a popular influence where people would hear. Can you imagine this French tightrope walker? Made an omelet on a tightrope and ate it. You want to see it for yourself, right? I mean, I'm kind of naturally skeptical. I would say, okay, I want to see this from my own eyes, right? I didn't have uh, YouTube and, and videos back then where you could just upload it and you didn't really have to go there. You had to see it for yourself. But according to legend, in, in 1860, a royal party from England came out to watch this Blondine perform. And he walked across the tightrope with, with a wheelbarrow. The cheers crowd. The cheers crowd. The crowd cheered. Excuse me. That's an impressive feat, walking across a tightrope with a wheelbarrow. Then he loaded it down with potatoes. A lot of weight in there. And walked across. Cha- the, I'm struggling with this. The crowd cheered louder. Then he walks up to the Duke of Newcastle and asks him a question. He asks, do you believe I could take a man safely across this tightrope in the wheelbarrow? The Duke responds, I do. I believe you could do that. Then Blondin answered, well then, hop in. (laughs) The Duke did not accept. He refused. Blondin turned to the crowd. Anyone want to get in the wheelbarrow? The crowd fell silent. Even though they had seen it with their own eyes and they were amazed, they cheered loudly at his theatrics. They didn't want to get in the wheelbarrow. The crowd and the duke believed that he could do it. They'd seen him do it, but they didn't trust him with their life. (coughs) Friends, I think we can do the same thing. And What do your actions or lack thereof reveal about who or what you're trusting in? Does what you confess to believe match with what you functionally entrust yourself to? It's very easy for us to fool ourselves and, and be intellectually convinced that Christianity is true, but not really act as if Jesus was real. If you claim to be a Christian, yet you live with the driving force of comfort, or money, or approval, or success, what you've actually done is you said you believed in Christianity, but you've entrusted yourself to money and to comfort. Money drives you. You're worried about, I need more money. Money, money, money. Money causes me anxiety and worry. Money is what you've entrusted yourself to. True faith that pleases God is not a simple lip service, welcoming Jesus. It's not only about believing right things about Jesus. It involves entrusting yourself to him, giving your life to him, believing that he's better, more satisfying, more desirable than comforts, riches, money, influence, because it is a faith that takes Jesus at his word. I think the purpose of this sign is to show us that Jesus has the power to give life. In the context, it prepares us for what Jesus will teach us later in chapter 5, that for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The focus on the story is the power of Jesus' words that there is power and life in the words of Jesus, and that leads us to say what Jesus says about his authority in chapter 5. But friends, seeing the power of Jesus' words was not meant to lead us to a mere intellectual agreement that Jesus could do this, but a trust in who he is, a dependence upon who he is, a leaning into him, a giving your life to him. I want to show you in this passage how, how there's grace and how Jesus is the hero of the story. Notice the grace in the very beginning, in verse 43 for 45. Jesus leaves fruitful ministry in Samaria, and he's coming to his hometown, a place where he's told him a prophet has no honor, and he goes to it. 
That's grace. The official comes to him and asks him to heal his boy, and Jesus does it. Jesus was not obligated to do that. This man was not deserving of this. That's grace. Notice the official doesn't even say anything true about Jesus' identity. Doesn't call him rabbi. Calls him sir. If the official worked for Herod, he would have been a, a, in, in charge of a, a wicked ruler. Might not have been the greatest guy. But Jesus says, go and your son will live. And in a mere word, 15 miles away, chemical changes happen in the boy's body. No one has power like that. Like car designers get together and they say, let's design this car. So they strategize and they make blueprints and they plan and they, they, they put the process into motion to make a car. Contractors don't come to a piece of land and say, let there be a house. They've got to make plans. They've got to hire teams to build, get permits. Jesus says, live, and he lives. Jesus could say, let there be a house, and there's a house. Jesus said, let there be light, and there was light. John showed us at the beginning of the gospel, the very words of Jesus is what created all things. It's immediate. The sickness was no match for the power of Jesus. The plans of the enemy were no match for Jesus. Even death death itself was no match for Jesus. The miracle here points to the greatest miracle, that Jesus, after being sentenced to death, an innocent man receiving the death of a criminal, he dies. But death was no match for him. He, he raised from the dead after the third day, demonstrating his power. He says, I have authority to lay down my life and to pick it up again. No one can do that. No one has the power of Jesus like that. Jesus says, I, I have the power in my voice to call the dead and they will rise. Jesus not only had all the power and the authority, but on the cross, Jesus became like the sick boy in the story. He not only was near the brink of death, he, he died for sick sinners like you and me. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might receive his righteousness. And friends, even in the midst of misunderstanding and false belief and ignorance, there is grace in Jesus if you come to him and trust him. It is not the, the amount of faith that saves us, it is the object of our faith. We're supposed to see the power and grace of Jesus in the story and give ourselves to him because we know he is worthy. Because no one has power like this. He is unmatched. He is supreme. We know comforts fall short. Money is temporary. People-pleasing is enslaving. Medicine fails, but Jesus endures forever. He has power and authority. He and he alone have supreme power and life-giving words. So we see Jesus' power, his, his accomplishment, and, and, and how great he has demonstrated in this story. We want to consider how does this empower us to live? How does this empower us to obey? Like I said, through seeing the glory and supreme power of Jesus, the greatness of Christ in this astonishing miracle, about him saying a word and healing happen, this encourages us to bank on Christ, to trust him, to believe that he's worthy, he's all-powerful, he's gracious and kind. We don't just want to believe right things about Jesus. We want to go when Jesus says go. We want to walk away when Jesus says go. We want to have the kind of faith that proves itself to be faith by obeying him, by showing that through our actions. And friends, I don't know what kind of problems you're facing this morning. I don't know what kind of challenges are in your life right now. And although we might look at this official and think that he might not have had the right understanding, should he even call Jesus by the right words? He called him sir. One thing that he did right, he came to Jesus. 
Let us be encouraged by what he did right. His son was ill. He came to Jesus. Are you coming to Jesus? When you're stressed and you're worried, do you come to Jesus? When you're afraid and lonely, do you come to Jesus? Come to him as he's revealed himself to us in his word. God has ordained and revealed himself through the Bible. And the same word that Jesus spoke to heal this child is the same life-giving words that we find in the scriptures to heal our sick hearts. Don't entrust yourself to anyone or anything else. Don't give something else ultimate allegiance in your heart. Trust in Christ. Trust him and his word. He is supremely worthy and powerful. Hope you can see that in the story. Don't settle for a superficial welcome of Jesus in your mere confessions. Don't simply give him lip service. Friends, I believe that all of us in this room are prone to this. We may seek to honor Jesus, but we can easily become complacent and calloused and comfortable with Jesus. I heard the phrase that Jesus is my homeboy. We kind of have this flippant attitude toward Christ. And there's a sense in which Christ is not our homeboy. He's God. Goodness. He says, go, and we go. May we give up this kind of immature thinking and arrogance and self-righteous dependence that we can live without taking Jesus at his word. Moses, when he was reminding the people in, in, in Deuteronomy about the great work that God had done for his people, he says this in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make known to you that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Friends, may we continually confess and repent of our pride and self-centeredness. What I pray is, as maybe you haven't been in the church that long, as you're coming to learn more about Christianity or, or get more connected to our community, you would see that this is what we want to be about. Not just giving lip service to Jesus, but obeying him, helping each other do that, committing ourselves to his word. We know that we will not entrust ourselves to Jesus perfectly. We're prone to worry and to fear and to anxiety because we believe that we can fall into the belief that we're in control, that we know what's better, that, that God is not, that we have more power than Jesus. But when we continually repent, when we find ourselves resting more in our couches, our food, our selfishness more than Christ. Church, what we see in this passage, and I hope that we can see ourselves in the Galileans as well, is that giving Jesus superficial welcomes does not honor him. But when we see the, the desperation and the insistence of the Father, this royal official, and we see the grace and power of Jesus in healing him at a distance in a mere word, that we would commit ourselves more fully to Christ through his life-giving and sustaining word. May we not just confess, but trust through demonstrating in our actions as we reflect and meditate and internalize and seek to apply God's word to us. Amen? Jesus has shown us his power, friends. He's demonstrated his greatness in the story, and we trust him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that a prayer of our church 
confession of our church would be what your disciples came to you and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Father, we see that the heavens proclaim the glory of you. The skies display your workmanship. They make known your glory. But Father, greater glory than this you have revealed to us in your creation. You revealed to us your word. You have shown it to us, your great power and, and control in your holy scriptures. So may we pray, the instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commands of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. They are a warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey them. How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. May the word of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil. They, do not, they walk only in his paths. You have charged us to keep your commands carefully. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. As I lean and learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. Help us, Father, do this. Your spirit empower us and fill us to obey you, to take you at your word, Jesus. We believe, Father, help our unbelief. In your son's name I pray, amen.